Father, we love you. We thank you for your word, and we pray that you would use it to point us to and help us treasure in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Little ones, you can be dismissed to your classroom so you go and learn about Christ. And as they do, um, about once a month or so, we have a lunch for guests of our church, and that happens today, so some of you have already registered. But if you're new to our church and you want to meet others and you want a free meal, uh, Mitch and Tessie Medley, you can raise your hand. They are hosting a lunch just for you. And so you can find them in the foyer afterwards if you would like to go to lunch and have a good time and meet others of our church. Uh, If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Philippians. We'll be in the second chapter there. Uh, And so uh, this week... I was reading a book with some, some guys that we, uh, every couple of weeks we get together and we read a book, and as we were reading, we, we saw that this author cr- quoted a really profound theologian by the name of Bruce Springsteen. And one of Bruce Springsteen's songs uh, sums up the human experience quite well. Everybody's got a hungry heart. Everybody's got a hungry heart. All of us hunger for something that we hope will make us complete, that will make our joy full. We hunger for that which we think will finally satisfy the longings, the gnawings at our hungry soul. And the good news is this morning, that's exactly what Philippians 2 holds out for us. It tells us what will satisfy our hungry heart. Let's read again Philippians 2. One through four. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So here's how I summarize that passage for us. Unity through humility completes our joy. Unity through humility completes our joy. And so this morning, I want to unpack and encourage us with three statements. Restoration Church, cultivate unity. Restoration Church, pursue humility. And Restoration Church, complete each other's joy. Restoration Church, cultivate unity. Look again at verse 1. Notice how it begins. So... Or, therefore, Paul is connecting us back to the previous verses. And if your eyes go back to verse 27, you see the guiding thought of these verses. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Above all else, Paul is calling the Philippian church to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And remember, living in a manner worthy of the gospel does not mean we live in such a way that we earn that we merit God's love and favor. 
No, living worthy of the gospel means living in such a way that we show the glorious beauty of the gospel, that Christ is our greatest treasure. Restoration, our church, God uses our church, the love in our church is the brush strokes on which he paints a beautiful mosaic of the gospel. And we show the worth of Christ. And in verses 28 through 30, Paul encourages the Philippian church to live worthy of the gospel by uniting together in advance of the gospel. Why? Because there's going to be external opposition. Now, in chapter 2, he turns to another threat. Internal division. And so it appears there's at least a hint of disunity in the Philippian church. We see this later in chapter 4 where Paul writes, I entreat Euodia. And I entreat Syndicate to agree in the Lord. So evidently, there's at least a hint of division. And so having addressed external opposition, now Paul's going to spend some time addressing internal division. And he knows that division within the church is real. Perhaps a greater danger than external hostility. And so Paul is writing for the sake of unifying the church to advance the gospel and to enjoy the gospel, that their joy might be made complete, that his joy might be made complete. And here in the beginning of chapter 2, he's telling what we've called Grace Church Philippi, cultivate unity. And I think if you were here, he would say the same thing to us, Restoration Church. Cultivate your unity. And as I've done before when I've preached on unity, I've chosen that word very carefully cultivate. I did not say create. Based on what Paul writes here and what he writes elsewhere, we, Restoration Church, do not create unity. Unity is created by God in Christ through the Spirit. So we realize it, we enjoy it, we foster it, but we do not create it. That is God's job in Christ. And that's what Paul's saying here. Look at verse 1. We see these these four repetitions of any or if any. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now, it might sound like, is Paul doubting the reality of these things in the Philippian church? No. He's not doubting these realities. He's using language to get their attention, to make them pause and consider. It's a rhetorical device Paul is using to show that unity and humility and joy necessarily flow from being a Christian. So it'd be like me saying to my daughters, if Cinderella is at Disney World, we're going to have fun. And they'd reply, well, of course Cinderella's at Disney World, Dad. Of course we're going to have fun. Exactly. So it is Paul saying to the Philippian church. If you're really a Christian, unity and humility are going to flow from your church. And they'd say, of course. Of course we are Christians. So of course unity and humility and joy should flow from our church. And so notice what Paul is doing here. It's what he does in his letters. Before he's telling the Philippians to do anything, he's reminding them who they are. He's reminding them of the grace that they have received. Who they are comes before what they must do. Before commanding or exhorting, 
Paul reminds the Philippians and us, Restoration Church, of who we are and what has happened to us when we came to faith in Christ. He's saying, if you came to faith in Christ, and you did, then here's how you should live. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ. Now that phrase, in Christ, is Paul's favorite term to describe all that it means to be a Christian. You could have an entire sermon series on that phrase. In Christ. The Philippians are in Christ. They share all that Christ is, fully pleasing to the Father. And they share all that Christ has done, lived a perfect life, died and rose again. Christ is their life, the very core of their identity. The very core of our identity, Restoration Church, is union. Being united with Christ through faith. That little phrase, in Christ, reminds us who we are and whose we are. And that changes everything. If any, comfort from love. Now, the reference here to love is general. But we know that all true love flows from God, who is love. 1 John 4 tells us God is love. And the clearest expression of love is what? It's the cross of Christ. And so Paul is calling the Philippians to remember the love of Christ sacrificially and unconditionally shown on the cross by giving his life up for them. He said, you receive this love. If you've been comforted by this love, and you have, then live in unity. If any participation in the Spirit, he goes on and says. So the Philippians are bound to Christ and to each other through the Holy Spirit. That word participation is a word we've seen before for partnership or fellowship. And so Paul is calling to mind the supernatural fellowship that Christians have in the gospel because of Christ. Christians are one because of the Spirit's indwelling presence in us that knits us together in Christ. And finally, he says, if any, affection and sympathy. And remember, we've seen that term affection before. If you glance back to chapter 1, verse 8, you see it there. And you'll notice, it's whose affection? Affection of Christ Jesus. And so Paul is reminding them that Jesus is gentle and mild, filled with divine compassion and tender and mercy. And the mercy that we've received from Christ flows through others, that they might treasure Christ as well. And so I hope you see what Paul is doing here. He is not giving a heavy-handed legalistic demand to strive to be something they're not. No. He's holding out a grace-filled, gospel-fueled invitation for them to enjoy who they are. Who you are matters before what you must do. And that's what Paul is saying. God's Word is doing the same thing for us. It's reminding us. Unity comes not primarily from what we do, but who we are, Restoration Church. We are in Christ. We are comforted by His sacrificial love. We have supernatural fellowship through the Holy Spirit. The affection of Christ that came to us in our salvation now passes through us to each other. And so our unity is not something we have to create. It's something we get to enjoy. It's already ours in Christ. 
And what does that unity look like? Well, verse 2 tells us. Look there at verse 2. Complete my joy. We'll, we'll come back to that. By, here's what unity looks like, being of the same mind, having the same love, being a full accord of one mind. Now, if you remember again, back to 27, those verses that we've read in chapter 1, we see something very similar. Where Paul says, stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul did not forget what he just wrote. Rather, the repetition reminds us of the importance of oneness. The church is to be one in mind, love, spirit, and purpose. Paul says there in verse 2, be of the same mind and be of one mind. That is, we are to think the same things. This does not mean we think the same things about everything. That would be boring if we all thought exactly the same about everything. We don't have to think the same way about politics. We don't have to think the same way about organic food, its benefits or its lack thereof. We don't have to think the same way about music or a thousand other things. That's not what Paul is saying. Remember verse 27, he said, Be of one mind, why? Striving for the faith of what? The gospel. And if you drop down to verse 5 of chapter 2, notice what Paul says. Have this, this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. It is yours. And so Paul is saying, think the same things about the gospel, about Christ. That's what we have to think the same things about. And we are to be into full accord. That is in full agreement of how we live. What we think and how we live. And again, just to reiterate again, this is exactly why we, Restoration Church, have a statement of faith, what we believe about Christ, how we're unified in our thinking, and a church covenant that we might live in full accord with one another. That's what those documents are doing. So I hope you see that as we work through the letter of Philippians, we don't just make this stuff up. We try to see where it comes from the Bible. This is one practical way we try to live out these realities of one mind and full accord. But notice here, passive agreement is not enough. In the middle of same mind and full accord in one mind, notice what Paul says. Have the same love. And again, he doesn't say just love the same things. He says have the same love. And so Paul's concern is not that all the Philippians love exactly the same thing but they all possess the same type of love. Have the same love. This is a type of love. And this, this is none other than the sacrificial agape love that we saw in chapter 1. God's sacrificial love. That's the type of love. Love for the glory of Christ and the gladness of others. And so we see this unity is not passive, it's active. God's love is active, isn't it? It seeks us out. It seeks to do good to others. That's what love does. It's not passive. And also notice the language here. It's all present tense. Being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being a full accord and one mind. Active language. This is persistent pursuit. And so we're reminded yet again that unity is not cultivated simply by receiving from the church. We must be active in serving and giving to the church, as we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
And so if you're here this morning, you take the name of Christ, my question for you is, are you doing this? Are you striving to be of one mind in full accord with a gospel-believing church? That could be this one. If it's not this one, we're happy to point you to other gospel-believing churches in this area where you could live out this reality. And for my fellow Restoration Church members, I say cultivate unity. Or, I should probably say keep cultivating unity. Keep cultivating unity. By God's grace, our church is marked by unity. I praise God for that. We're not perfect. We mess up. We've got a lot to work on. But we are marked by unity. And so remember, our unity restoration church is more than just a place to connect or learn or have our needs met. Our unity is a vivid expression of the nature of God and a compelling community testifying to the reconciling power of the gospel. That's what our community is doing, our union in Christ, our display of the gospel. So every barrier in our relationship with God and with each other has been overcome by a bloody cross and an empty tomb. And so what this means is a divided church lies about who God is and what the gospel does. A divided church lies about who God is and what the gospel does. And so Paul is not concerned with unity for unity's sake. Notice that. He's not concerned just with unity because unity is the goal. So just like a frame is not the goal of a picture, unity is not the goal of a church. What does a frame do? It directs your attention to that which is really, really important. So it is with the unity of a church. It directs our attention to what really matters. Unity is how we see and savor Jesus Christ. Unity is how we show how beautiful Christ truly is. That's why unity matters. And so I would encourage all the members of Restoration Church this week, Take some time and praise God for the unity of our church. Praise God for that. Don't presume upon it. If you were to attend elders meetings, you would know this is one of the things that we pray for the most inside the life of our church. Because it's precious to us. Because it's precious to God. So praise God for it. And then pray. Pray that we'd be a church that personal preference is below gospel priority. And then if there's a brother or sister, a family member, a co-worker that you're holding a grudge against, that you're bitter towards, that you're resentful of, the Spirit's calling you to repent. Specifically inside the life of a church. If we're bitter towards holding a grudge against, resentful of another brother and sister in Christ, we're lying about our union with Jesus. We're lying about being in Christ, participating in the Spirit. So the Spirit is calling us to repentance and to realize and enjoy that oneness that we do have. And this is really, really hard. It requires a great deal of humility. And that's why Paul goes on to address humility. So Restoration Church, cultivate unity as we pursue humility. Look there at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant 
than yourselves. These are hard verses. For the Christian, selfishness is never allowed. For the Christian, arrogance is never permitted. Do nothing, zip, nada, zilch, zero, not, nil. No excuses, no self-justifications. It's never not sin to be selfish. It's never not sin to be arrogant. Welcome to my conviction this week. And remember the context. Paul is writing for the unity of the church and the advancement and the enjoyment of the gospel. Satan is not the only enemy of the church. Selfishness is just as dangerous. Most church splits do not come because of doctrinal disagreements, but because of selfish desires. Most people that leave churches are not fighting over primary theological issues, but misplaced personal preferences. And Paul says, do nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But notice the issue is not ambition. That's not the issue. We should all be ambitious. We should have a holy ambition to love God supremely, to love others selflessly, make disciples eagerly, work in your jobs excellently, fight for justice passionately. The issue is not ambition. Scripture calls us to outdo one another in showing honor. That is a holy ambition. The problem is not ambition. The problem is selfish ambition. A preoccupation with self, arrogance, boasting, flaunting knowledge, dropping names, parading accomplishments, bragging about talents, defining spiritual maturity by activity, self-righteously comparing. This is how the world would call us to live. In so many ways, we're told to prove our worth, impress those around us, strive to be noticed, Seek to be honored. Do whatever it takes to advance your career. Paul's words here could not be any more countercultural. The sermons of the world try to bend our hearts to be consumed with self. And we have to be students of what we read of what we watch, of what we listen to. We need to pay attention to how those things are trying to form, or we should say rather, deform us. Because they're trying to shape our desires and our dreams. So think about some of the popular slogans constantly buzzing around us. And for the record, I'm not saying be a hermit and withdraw and don't ever watch TV or listen or whatever. I'm saying you have to be a student. You have to be wise. So listen to some of these slogans. Just do it. Why wait? Obey your thirst because you're worth it. I'm loving it. No boundaries. Think different. Expect more. Pay less. Taste the feeling. In other words, be selfish. Instantly gratify yourself. 
receive, but don't give, don't conform. And remember, he who dies with the most toys wins. Social media, not necessarily wrong in itself, is the perfect portal for self-promotion. It's why it thrives. It can be used for good. Again, I'm not a curmudgeon and I'm completely against it. I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying it's the perfect portal because we can instantly announce to the world how great our achievements are. We can instantly show the world a picture of our dinner because we're that important. We even have now what we call selfies, which we take with our selfie stick. Think about that. We are consumed with ourselves. And then what you do? Full disclosure, this is one of the reasons why I had to stop social media, because I'm a prideful man who couldn't handle it. Seriously. Because what do you, you post something? What do you do? You go back and you check how many people liked it, retweeted it, or shared it. And the more it happens, the better you feel. That's what happens. At least it's what happened to me. Because I'm done. My heart can't handle it. Maybe all are more godly than me. But the pull is strong. It's strong. These are just examples. Again, I'm not saying these things are inherently bad. They're not. We just have to be conscious of how these things are forming us. Because the pull is strong both around us and in us. And so in a word, God hates pride. Proverbs 8.13, Pride and arrogance I hate, says the Lord. God opposes the proud. We see this in the life of Christ, don't we? God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, has his harshest words for the prideful religious leaders. You cannot be full of yourself and follow Christ. You cannot be full of yourself and follow Christ. And so, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and you have been turned off by the arrogance and pride of someone who takes the name of Christ, I want to say, I am sorry. I hope that you see from our scriptures, this is not how our God calls us to live. Arrogance has no place in the life of a Christian. And to be clear, this does not mean Christians are going to be completely free from pride and arrogance. We mess up, we sin, we're not perfect. To be a Christian does not mean that we're perfect, but that we're repentant and trusting in the perfection of Christ. We aren't okay with our pride and selfishness. We want to root it out of the soil of our hearts and that we might honor Christ. And so this week I took some time and I was thinking about how can I begin to examine the pride of my life and just ask myself some questions. And now I ask them to you. Do you often complain and grumble when things don't go your way? Are you consumed with what others think about you? Are you easily angered or irritated? Are you bitter because your life isn't the way you hoped it would be? Bitter at God? Bitter at others? When someone disagrees with you or criticizes you, are you automatically defensive? Do you invite others to speak into your life 
Do you minimize or intentionally cover up sin and shortcomings? When was the last time you said, I'm sorry, I sinned against you. Will you forgive me? Period. No explanation, no excuses. Do you compare yourself to others and think you are better? I ask these questions not as one who's arrived. The temptation for selfish ambition and conceit for me is really, 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 really strong. It's something I've battled my whole life. Just because I'm behind a pulpit preaching a Bible does not mean I'm immune. If anything, the pool is probably greater on me than it is on you. And I wrestle with it daily and I want to hate it. I want to kill it and I want to crush it. And I hope you do the same. And how do we do that? Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or deceit, but put on humility. In humility. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And what is humility? So if pride is thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought, is, is humility thinking less of ourselves? No. You can think less of yourself, but who are you still thinking about? Yourself. Pride does not care if you mope in self-degradation or show off in self-exaltation. As long as you're thinking about yourself, pride does not care if you're puffed up or you're pouting. True humility, as C.S. Lewis has said, is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. It's not falsely assuming that you have no gifts or aren't good at anything. That's not humility. Humility is not the absence of power or position or influence or gifts. It's the use of those things for the glory of God and the good of others. Humility is a heart that's oriented up to God and out toward others, not in on self like pride. That's what humility is. And what does that look like? Count others as more significant than yourselves. So here's a very practical way to summarize and apply these verses. Every room you walk into, every place that you enter, ask yourself this question. Who is the least important person in this place? Who is the least important person in this place? And the biblical answer that we don't like is, I am. I am. But deep down, we all have reasons it can't be me. I cannot be the least important person in this place this morning. I'm wearing a microphone. You're all looking at me. I can't be the least important person in my house. I'm called to be the leader. I can't be the least important person in the line at the grocery store. Yes, the person is taking forever, but I've got an important discipling appointment to get to. Don't they know that? There's my partial list. I bet you can make one too. We all have self-justifying motives while we can't be the least important person. We don't even like to think about that. So how do we get here? How do we get to the place where we can say with freedom and with joy, I 
am the least important person here. You study and you savor the cross of Christ. The cross is the great intersection of pride and humility. It was our pride that killed Christ and it was his humility that saved us. Pride made redemption necessary. Humility made redemption possible. So we are so rebellious and grievous that it took the death of God's eternal Son to make payment for our sins. From the shadow of the cross, we see that it was my pride, my selfish ambition that drove the nails into Christ's hands and feet. Stop and think about that. It's humbling. But it's not disheartening. Don't stop there. It's not disheartening. Yes, you are more sinful than you dare to think, but you are more loved, Christian, than you dared to dream. The cross reminds us that we are helpless. It does not mean that we are worthless. From the shadow of the cross, we realize Christ humbly and willfully gave his life for us. From the shadow of the cross, we see that God set his affection on us. Remember this from Isaiah? He rejoices over us like a bride rejoices over, or like a groom rejoices over his bride. That's what God does. And Jesus rose again. He gave us a new life and new loves that we might pursue humility. That's why Paul goes on. This is such a hard endeavor. Paul goes on in verses 5 through 11 of this chapter to use the weightiest theological language available to show the beauty of humility in the life of Christ. That he who was in heaven being worshipped by the heavenly host took on the robes of man and died a death, even death on a cross. And now we can become like him. The root of Christian humility is the good news, the infinitely glorious news that Jesus died for my sins and rose again so that I might be counted as a child of God. His humility became our salvation, our salvation. Or his humility became our salvation. His salvation is our humility. His humility became our salvation. His salvation is our humility. And so when our eyes are opened up to this truth, we see that God's grace flows to those pursuing humility. That's what Scripture says over and over again. Isaiah 66, 2. This is the one to whom I look, says the Lord. He who is humble and contrite in spirit. Psalm 149. God delights in the humble. Three times in Scripture, God says, I oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. See, pride so fills us up, there's no room left for God's grace. But it's the humble heart that has room to fill us up. For God's grace to fill us up, like water that flows to the lowest point, so God's grace flows to those who are lowly. That's what it does. And so I hope you see that the the cross of Christ is both the, the pattern of our humility But it's not just an example that we strive for. It's also the power for humility because the Spirit indwells us. That's key. It is both the pattern of our humility and the power for humility. And now with the indwelling Holy Spirit, we can be like Christ, who counted others more significant than himself. We, Christian, have the strongest possible motive for counting others more significant than ourselves because that's what our Savior did. He counted 
us and our salvation more significant than preserving his own life. And then he rose again and sent the Spirit to indwell us that we might live and count others more significant than ourselves. That we might be like Christ who is God-centered and other-oriented. Just like humility would call us to live. And what does this look like? Look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So notice Paul says, look not only to your own interests. So he's not forbidding paying attention to your own needs. There are legitimate needs that we have. He's not advocating for complete and total self-neglect. It's not what he's saying. He's forbidding a selfish preoccupation with our own interests. He's calling us to reprioritize our lives so that the greatest share of attention is given to others. Those who take the name of Christ should have a disposition that thinks first and favorably of others. And notice what he says. He says, look to the interest of others. He doesn't say, kind of pay attention in case someone really wants to tell you. Look, observe, study, engage. Again, we see this intentionality. And that's exactly what this requires. This looking to the interests of others requires community and intentionality. It requires community because if you're not around others and meaningfully connect with them, you have no idea. You have to be around others. But being around others is not simply enough. You have to be intentional. We can be around others and just talk about how great we are all the time. That's not looking to their interests. We have to intentionally ask, how are you? How can I serve you? What can I do for you? How can I pray for you this week? So this week I received an email, and it reads like this. Title, email. Serving Restoration Church. Email reads, Hey Joey, my Tuesday mornings are usually free. Is there any way I can serve Restoration Church or Alejandro at this time? Thanks so much. That's looking to the interests of others. A couple of weeks ago, received another email from one of our sisters in our church. Hey, Joey, are there people in our church who have material needs I could help meet? Not only this, but including a meal. Are there people who may feel lonely or might need company, an invitation over for dinner, etc.? I know it's the job of the body to get to know one another so that we know each other's needs and burdens. I am thinking about this, and I will try to be more intentional to build these relationships, but you may see things I haven't, and I thought I would ask. Thank you. And I say, no, thank you. That's what this looks like. Looking to the interest of others. And so I say, Restoration Church, keep pursuing humility. Keep doing it. Keep looking to the interest of others. Parents, pursue humility and look to the interest of your children. American Girl Doll, Legos, Superman, their interests are more important than yours and mine. Parents, pursue humility and look to the interest of others by confessing your sin to them and asking for forgiveness regularly. They need to know you know Jesus. You need Jesus just as much as they do, if not more. Husbands, Pursue humility and look to the interests of your wife. When she wants to talk, put down 
the remote. Turn off ESPN or whatever it is you watch. Wives, pursue humility by looking to the interests of your husbands. His interest matters more. Maybe he's tired and don't want to take out the trash right now. That's okay on occasion. Seriously, outdo one another. Have a battle. Outdo one another in showing honor. No, my interest, your interests are more important. No, yours are. Your, no, just, yeah, battle that way. Have a holy ambition. Restoration Church as a whole, pursue humility by serving your fellow community group members and your church members. Look to the interests of others by showing up to church on time, to community group on time, and asking not what can I get out of this, but how can I serve? Pursue humility by being slow to complain about how the church is not meeting your personal preferences, but quick to celebrate the church's gospel proclamation like Paul. Pursue humility and look to these interests of others by being very, very slow to critique and really, really fast to commend and encourage. Point out God's grace to each other. And in all things, Paul is speaking directly to the church, but I think do nothing means do nothing. So we can begin to apply this outside the church. So like when you're in line at the grocery store and the person in front of you is taking forever, they're more important than you. That driver who just cut you off, more important. The person who shoves you out of the way so they can get on the metro, more important. Do nothing. Paul says. This is how the Spirit would call us to live. And here's how He empowers us to live. And I praise God that so many of you do this well. And for if you're here and you're not trusting in Christ, my question to you is this morning, would you pursue humility? Would you confess selfish ambition to God and come to Him and know that you can't earn His favor through your efforts, but only through Christ will you humbly come to Him? If you want to talk more about that, you can come talk to me. I would be happy to tell you how I battle pride and selfish ambition and how Christ and his humility has been more satisfying to me. Or I can connect you with somebody else in our church. Because Christ is satisfying. He is better. And that's what, how Paul wants us to see, that Christianity is not some drab, boring, dull straitjacket that restricts our joy. Notice what he says in verse 2. This is the command of this passage, that the Complete my joy. Complete my joy. So cultivating unity in Christ and pursuing humility because of Christ completes our joy. So Paul is in prison. He's chained. chained. Execution is near. Yet he insists that his joy will be complete if the Philippians live in gospel unity. And what's his greatest joy? Remember chapter 1? I don't care what happens as long as what? Christ is proclaimed. That's my joy. Jesus is my joy. And so Paul knows that a church that's divided cannot enjoy and exalt Christ. For Paul, a divided church equals diminished joy. And a gospel united church equals completed joy. Flip over to chapter 4, verse 1. Notice what Paul says about the Philippian church. He calls them my joy and crown. He calls the Philippian church his joy. Paul's joy is so deeply tied to those in whom he's invested that his spiritual soul would feel somewhat dead if they weren't living in light of the gospel. That messed with me this week. 
Paul shouldn't talk like that. Is he saying that something other than Jesus is needed for his joy? That he needs something from other people for his joy to be full? Well, evidently, Paul cannot separate Jesus and the church. And so Paul's greatest delight is Jesus Christ. And he knows the local church shows the beauty and the brilliance of the person and the work of Christ. The church is the gospel made visible. The invisible Christ is made visible through the church. So in a very real way, as the Philippian church enjoys and exalts Christ, Paul's joy grows all the more. It's like fuel added to the fire. And so it should be with us, Restoration Church. What completes Paul's joy should complete our joy. So saying the church completes our joy does not mean that Jesus is less than our greatest treasure. No. It means that he is our greatest treasure, but he is not enjoyed inwardly and separately from others. That's what Paul is saying. Complete our joy. As we, as, as we see Christ formed in others and Christ is formed in us, we fuel each other's joy in Christ. And so as we cultivate gospel unity, as we, as we grow in gospel humility, the flame of the gospel in our church gets hotter and hotter and warms up the souls so that our joy might be made complete. That's what Paul is saying. Our joy is made complete as we help each other follow Christ. And so here's what I hope you see this morning. Cultivating unity in Christ and pursuing humility like Christ, counting each other more significant because of Christ, is not a joy-quenching, soul-shrinking, freedom-robbing demand from an unrested God. It's an invitation to the fullness of joy. That's what it is. That's what Paul's holding out for us. Everybody's got a hungry heart. And the church helps us feed on the one who will forever satisfy us. It's an appetizer of the meal, the heavenly meal that is to come. And so, Restoration Church, God has done everything necessary to make our joy complete. He sent his son to live a humble life and die humiliating death. And his son rose again and sent the spirit that might indwell us so that we could have a new life and new loves and be compelled to cultivate unity, pursue humility, and complete each other's joy. And so, yes, I am the least important person here this morning. The more I understand that, the more full my joy will be. And so it is with you. The more you understand that, the more full your joy will be as well. May God give us the grace to complete each other's joy. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for Christ. These words are hard, but they're beautiful. They're weighty, but they're wonderful. Help us. Help us, Father. Jesus, help us. Spirit, help us. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. But consider others more significant than ourselves.
that we might showcase the beauty of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.